Hear now the word of the Lord as it comes to us from Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his compassion is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and you faithfully will be blessed. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to all people your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all the generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his deeds. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. I hope you had a good 4th of July. I hope you had good time off and rest. I hope you enjoyed grills and the beach and apple pie and baked beans. And I want a key lime pie myself. I'm a little preferential. And that might not make me American, I know, to shun the apple pie, but Publix makes a really good key lime pie, just so you know. But during this holiday week, I found myself thinking a lot about last week's sermon. Michael and Wilson preached about the nature of a truly free life and how we're only really free as Christians when we choose to give up our freedom and bind ourselves to Christ. Freedom as Christians doesn't just mean we can do whatever we want, whenever we want. It means that we choose to give up our own agency in order to bind our will to the will of God. And as I was listening to the fireworks go off on Tuesday night, and I say listening because my kids were in bed, so I was in bed. When you got a five and three-year-old, you, you, you know, like when they go to sleep, you go to sleep, or at least you rest. And so we didn't quite make it to the fireworks going off. But I was laying there, and I could hear them. And I was thinking about the freedom that we have in Christ and relation to our freedom as Americans. And I kept coming back to those first words of the Declaration of Independence that they quoted in last week's sermon. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And as I was sitting there thinking about it, I started realizing I think most of our most important rules and maxims and mottos, they all come in threes, right? We have these triplets in our life. So life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. John Wesley had three simple rules. Do no harm, do good, stay in love with God. The prophet Micah tells us to act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. Paul says, faith, hope, and love. The hippies say, peace, love, and rock and roll. Actually, that's more the church version of it. But, you know, my, my wife and I, we have three rules for our own household. 
We believe in all those that I just mentioned, but we've contextualized them into our own hopes for ourselves and our children. Hopefully, if you were to ask our five-year-old August there, what are our three family rules? If we're lucky, she'll tell you. Show kindness, offer grace, and practice mercy. Those are the three things uh, that we believe will help us be most like Christ and to live in a world that bears witness to the love of God and that we, in turn, love God with all that we are. We want to, to show kindness at all times. And we're still working on that, right, August? We're getting there. We want to, to offer grace as unmerited favor. A few weeks ago before surgery, uh, the last thing I said was that I hope we will all have a presumption of grace, that we will presume graciousness about everyone's goodness and not assume the worst, and that we will practice mercy by forgiving one another and hoping that others will forgive us. Brianna has those painted up on a wooden canvas at our house, and we came up with those three rules from considering all the things we just mentioned before from the Bible, but also from deep meditation on Psalm 145. That's the psalm I just wrote a moment ago. It's a psalm assigned for us today by the lectionary. Throughout the month of July, we are using the lectionary as our guide for our scripture lessons. And so if you want to know what we're preaching about the next couple of weeks, just go check the lectionary. You can go to revisedlectionary.com and it'll tell you what the prescribed readings are. And the psalm this week, it offers us more than three things about God and God's behavior, but it's those first three in verse eight that we read that I can't help but have it really stick in my mind. The Lord is gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. There's a great Shane and Shane song. If you remember that acoustic duo from the early to mid-2000s Christian contemporary genre, which was right in my wheelhouse as a youth in middle school and in high school, and they had this song that was aptly named Psalm 145. And the chorus over and over would sing, The Lord is gracious, slow to anger, rich in love he is, good to all, over and over. And so now that, that song made such a big impression upon me that anytime I hear that, read this psalm, I can't help but think of that song. And that chorus has just become a part of my prayer life. The Lord is gracious and slow to anger. He's rich in love. And after verse 8, Psalm 145 continues to create for us a beautiful picture of who God is and how we relate to God. It continues on by saying, uh, He is good to all. His compassion is over all. Everything will give thanks to the Lord. We shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. Because of God's goodness, we will tell everyone about your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. We will tell everyone that your kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. And we will remind the world that the Lord is faithful. He's faithful in word and gracious in all of his deeds. The Lord holds up those that are falling and raises up those that are bowed down. Other than Jesus Christ himself, I don't know that there is a more complete or hopeful picture in all of the Bible of who God is than Psalm 145. 
The Lord is gracious, slow to anger, rich in love. But what does any of that mean? What does it mean that God is gracious? In what ways is God slow to anger? How is God rich in love? Well, if we look at the rest rest of our lectionary passages, we get some more understanding about these things. Let's consider first the idea of God's graciousness. If we consider the gospel lesson we just read, Jesus speaks of God's graciousness, but it is as a juxtaposition of our own ignorance. Jesus says, but what will I compare you all, this generation? John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is saying, you thought John was wrong for not eating and drinking. You say I am wrong for eating and drinking, for doing these things. Well, which is it? Who's right and who's wrong? Was John wrong for his abstinence or am I wrong for enjoying dinners and wine? Neither. Jesus says, and then Jesus prays to God. He says, Lord, Father, I thank you because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and you revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus says that the ignorance of the proud and those that think themselves wise is in fact an example of God's graciousness. It's an avenue for God to show how he is gracious, which is kind of crazy if you think about it, right? Because we're all here in church this morning trying to be better Christians. We go to our Bible studies. We read the scriptures. We go to Sunday school. We will to, to be wiser. Yet in this text, those that are wisest in the ways of their religiosity were the most ignorant in the ways of the Lord. And it was their ignorance that made visible God's graciousness. Jesus tells them, here's the thing. If you can let go of your own self-righteousness, if you can let go of your need to be right all the time, if you can do as Proverbs says, and trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understandings, acknowledge him in all your ways. And Jesus says this, that all that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. God's graciousness is a reprieve for our souls and a lightening of our burdens, and not just a physical demand on our shoulders. And it is not some justification or vindication of our own rightness, but it is a freedom to not have to be the judge. It is freedom to not have to compare yourself to others. It is freedom to be able to give things over to God. God's graciousness is a welcome reprieve for our souls, just as God's slowness to anger can alleviate our fear of failure. That's one thing just about every human being has, a fear of failing. 
some people, entrepreneurs, business persons, they say, well, failing is good, but, but I've actually never met somebody who's not at least a little afraid of it. Afraid of doing something that we shouldn't do. Making the wrong decision. Or even acting in a way that we know is not right. We end up being a little bit like Paul. If you remember in his letter to the Romans, this is something he himself struggled with. He was stuck in a cycle of sin, stuck in a cycle of making the wrong decisions, of failing and being upset about it. He admits to the church in Rome in chapter 7, he says this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do that. But what I do is what I hate. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's the sin living inside of me. For I have the desire to do good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do. This is what I keep doing. But then he says, but I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I promise you, I get angry with my kids for their mistakes well before God gets angry at me for mine or any of us for any of our mistakes. In fact, I get angry with complete strangers well before God gets angry with them and God knows them way better than I do. Paul, the writer of most of the New Testament, admits that he himself messes up all the time, makes mistakes, does the the things he shouldn't be doing. But the Lord is slow to anger. And Paul recognizes that even in his cycle of sin, his mistakes, that God is fighting in his own soul on his behalf, that Jesus is at work within his life trying to help him to be the person that God wants him to be, and all along the way, forgiving him so that his failures do not have to define him. Friends, no matter what you might have heard growing up, the Lord is not waiting around every single corner to punish you for each of your mistakes. The Lord is not Santa Claus waiting to put you on the naughty list after a certain amount of sins have been committed. No, the Lord is gracious and slow to anger. God wants you to be made whole and to experience forgiveness and to not live in fear, especially to live in fear of God. And the Lord is steadfast in love. The Lord is rich in love. But when we think of love, and when we think about God who loves us, and God who is love, what do we imagine? What comes to your mind? What do you conjure in your brain when you think about the God that is rich in love? Do you imagine hugs, kisses, and uggamuggas from the Lord on high? Uggamugga is from Daniel Tiger's neighborhood, where you do like the nose kiss thing. We do that every night before bed. Is that what you're picturing? Are you picturing presents and blessings that fall down from on high? I'm not sure what you imagine when you think of a God that is steadfast in love, but I know when we read our lectionary texts for this week, what Psalm 145, Matthew 11, Romans 7, and Zechariah 9, think of God who is love. They all contain within them this thread 
about how the Bible imagines a God who is rich in love. Matthew 11 ends by saying, all of you, all of you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, I will give you rest. Romans 7, there is another power at work within us that is at war with the sin inside of us. Psalm 145, the Lord upholds all that are falling and raises up those that are bowed down. And the prophet Zechariah says this, the Lord will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall command peace to the nation. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Steadfast love for the Bible looks like peace. Peace from the tyranny of heavy burdens that are weighing us down, the freedom of the yoke of Jesus Christ. Peace from the inner turmoil of a sin's indignation in our own hearts. Peace from oppression and being bowed down. And peace from violence and conflict. God's steadfast love is good to all because it is peace for the world. Every Christmas where we say, Emmanuel, God with us, good news to all mankind, and peace on earth. At the every end of every single worship service where I leave, what is my benediction? May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God's love, which is never ending, is the only thing that will grant true peace. As I've said, I've been thinking a lot about this notion of freedom this week. I've been thinking about our, our freedom in Christ and the freedoms we enjoy as citizens of the United States of America. I've been reflecting with deep gratitude on the freedoms we have as Americans and an appreciation of the sacrifices many people have made so that we might live in a free country. And I'm struck by this tension that a part of this freedom we get is to live in a country at peace. But it's only because we have triumphed during times of war. For most of human history, war is the precursor to any kind of civil peace, right? In 1776, we started a war to gain our freedom, which led to a time of civil peace. And throughout our country's history, we've had times of war that ended with our country being at peace, just like we are right now. And it seems as if the two, war and peace, are inextricably and forever linked, hopelessly wrought together. But then I think about a story my friend Levi recently told me about a conversation he had with a church member. Levi is the pastor at Perdido Bay United Methodist Church, and like many pastors in Northwest Florida, his church is made up of current and retired military personnel and their families. Levi's gotten to spend a great deal of time of members, uh, with members of the Navy and the Air Force. And one day he was with a retired Navy SEAL and they got to talking about his service and the times that he had been deployed. This gentleman had seen more than his fair share of combat, participating in some of the most dangerous engagements Americans have been involved in over the past few decades. And he told Levi, you know how you can tell those that have seen action from those that haven't? Those that have not been in battle are the ones itching for a fight. And those who've seen war are the ones praying for peace. The people who fought in wars are the ones most desperate for them to never happen again. 
And so I cannot help but read these scriptures on this week while we celebrate our country's freedom and be grateful for the freedom we have, the peace of our country, and give thanks and appreciation to the families of those who have sacrificed, the brave men and women that have made this peace possible, while simultaneously joining the warriors and praying that no one else ever has to make that sacrifice again. I pray that God's peace will not be limited to a few stress-free hours when our kids go to bed. That peace is not just something we feel whenever we get a reprieve from work that is unyielding. But I pray that the Lord will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. That the battle bow shall be cut off. And I pray that he will command peace to every nation. And his dominion will reign from sea to sea. And that the world will experience a peace that passes all understanding. From a God who is gracious, slow to anger, and rich in love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.